Welcome back to PG Keen. This is our second episode, and I'm Vivian Liddell. We're deep into spring break season down here. Last week it was my kids' spring break. This week it's my spring break. That might not seem like the best deal because, you know, we can't all go on vacation together. But here's how it played out. Last week, my kids went down with their grandparents for the whole week, which means that me and my partner, technically, yes, he's my husband, but I prefer the term partner, got some adult time in. I read the entire Sunday Times and could be seen out in public together with my partner. Sometimes I go out, sometimes he goes out, but we never make it out at the same time. So that was a big deal. It was also International Women's Day on Wednesday. Women were encouraged to stay home and wear red to promote awareness of the paid and unpaid contributions that women make. And on Wednesday, I heard about WalletHub's report on the best and worst states for women to live in the U.S. Georgia, where I'm broadcasting from and where I live and where I have lived for what is the majority of my life now, came in at number 46 on this list overall. Not so good. In fact, the South did not fare well as a region. Coming in behind Georgia were Nevada, South Carolina, Alabama, Louisiana, and dead last, my former place of uh, residence, Mississippi. So almost all of the worst states on this list were in the Southeast United States, except Nevada. I don't know what's going on over there in Nevada. They looked at a pretty big variety of factors when they put together this list. How affordable is it to see a doctor? What, how much money do women earn? What is the unemployment rate for women? What share of businesses are women owned? Friendliness toward working moms. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm having to wonder when I read that how they how they got the data on exactly how friendly people were towards working moms. Probably a very interesting survey. Life expectancy. Prevalence of rape and stalking. You can see the whole list of the criteria that they used and their sources on the Wallet Hub website. So anyway, Georgia was 46th overall on this list. It was 40th in health and safety, but it ranked 48th in economic and social well-being which was not a shocker for those of us who've grown up in Georgia, or should I say not a shocker for most of us. I did go to work on International Women's Day. I have students relying on me. I felt like it was my duty to them to show up to work. And I even forgot to wear red because I'm a busy person, but I did mention the study to my students when I got there to see what their responses were. And I got a range of responses, as you do when you speak to a group of diverse peoples. And a lot of them were not surprised, but some of them were pretty surprised that Georgia was so low on this list. I got comments like, well, you know, I, I think Georgia's a pretty great place to be, and I'm a woman. And my response to that is, have you lived in another state? 
Because if not, it's kind of like when you have shitty parents and you grow up and you're a kid, but you don't know your parents are shitty. You think, my parents are great. I love my parents. Everything's cool. This is normal. And then you go off to college and see how other people's parents are. And you're like, oh, well, that's what the state of Georgia is to us right now. It's a shitty parent. But it's our state and we love it. We grew up here. We want it to work for us. So what are we going to do with it? Well, we could beg it to go to therapy. Um, That usually doesn't work in my experience. Or we could, not that therapy doesn't work, but that begging the shitty parent to go to therapy is not going to work. Or we could try to make things better ourselves. We could step up our own game and figure out how we're going to do this as people, as women. Which brings me back to spring break. So on Monday, I was seen out in public with my partner, as I mentioned. We went out to High Low, which is a local bar and lounge, and met up with our friend and local author, Al Dixon, for a People's Power Happy Hour. He, we showed up, we ordered some pastrami and some beers. They also have some non-meat pastrami there, if you're into that, which the guy really seemed like he wanted us to order the non-meat version. You know, we were hanging out with a bunch of progressives, so maybe he was just expecting us to order the non-meat version. He wanted to make sure he got our order correct. Yes, we did get pastrami. It was pretty tasty, too. And... We saw our friend Al, he came in, set up over on the kind of ledge table, what do you call that, counter that was off of the side of the wall. He had printed out a list of issues and house bills that were up for vote. And with each issue, he had a list of representatives associated with that bill or issue for you to write to them. There were postcards, stamps, envelopes, everything was on hand, ready to go. And so basically, you show up with your friends, um, or you make new friends there, and everybody just sits around gabbing and writing letters. So I wanted to give a shout out to them. You can find out more info on their Facebook page. It's called People's Power Happy Hour. And the next meeting is on Monday, March 20th, 7 p.m. at Hilo. So at this point, you might be asking yourself, when are we going to talk about art? Okay. All right, you're right. But this is also a podcast about women and the South. So I thought it was time that we got into a little bit of politics here in our intro. My guest this week helped spawn this political intro, local artist and arts advocate, Melissa Lee. Melissa is a painter, has a day job, like many of us, works here in Athens at UGA, And she also serves on the board for the Athens Cultural Affairs Commission, which is working on putting more public art into the community. I talked to her about growing up in South Georgia, why mamas shouldn't let their babies grow up to be existentialist or libertarians, and, of course, art. We started our chat discussing her recent adventure, attending the last event at the soon-to-be-demolished Georgia Dome in downtown Atlanta.
monster truck jam though. Right. I am excited about like <laughs> what happened at the monster truck jam because well, I've never been to one. You know, I didn't know anything about monster jam <laughs> at all. So of course the few days prior, you know, I thought I would Google it and see literally Google what is monster jam. <laughs> <laughs> and I found out that they're kind the trucks are kind of like characters that people follow. So I would sort of equate it to wrestling. Yeah, like wrestling. So I've watched a lot of Cars the movie with my kids. Okay. And they have a a little like spin-off of that that has monster trucks and okay. they do have like the Mexican wrestler mm-hmm. car. That's just like Monster Jam. Okay. So they've got these very specific personalities and names and I think the trucks even take on that personality. So there's Grave Digger and he's mm-hmm. like the really big one and very fast. Obviously, his truck is just better than everyone else's, and that's why he <laughs> wins. Um, then there's an ice cream man. There's, you know, one girl, Wildflower, in, like, a little pink car. Um, and they... And they have a battle. Do they, like, battle off with well, each other? I thought it was going to be more dramatic, <laughs> and maybe that more cars would be crushed. I thought that it was going to be just driving on top of old cars. Right. But it seemed more like races, and so it was duels. Mm. Two trucks would race, and then it, that was sort of like a heat. How and then long two did this more go would on race. for? We stayed about an hour and a half, and we actually didn't stay the whole time because we came back to Athens that night. But um, they had wheelie competitions, but it didn't seem as crushing car as much crushing right. cars as I thought so I was a little disappointed yeah there was not but, as much destruction but those things are probably super expensive so yeah yeah they don't want to destroy them on every yeah uh, <laughs> and it was really loud so you can't talk to anyone because it's just the engines the whole time and it smelled like gas hmm. but people were excited and everyone was having a blast around <laughs> us and it was you know I cheered and everything it was I'm too. sure it was a full crowd since it was the last event there it was and it was a lot of kids I think it was yeah. it was a lot of like young boys and their families and they yes. had the shirts of their favorite truck and they were really into it I could see taking my kids to that I've yeah. got two boys and I, I feel like that's part of why I'm asking I mean I think like Monster Jam could be in my future th- yeah, yeah it probably is <laughs> it was less party drinking atmosphere and more families little boys watching it so interesting yeah so tifton (laughs) yes okay so part of the reason i I have never met you before (laughs) just now yeah and i know tatiana thought that we had a lot in common so she knows both of us yeah and we're both from south georgia Mm -hmm. um so i went to high school in albany okay i went to westover Mm -hmm. and graduated in 1989 okay and i have not my parents my dad worked for miller Yes. One of the big employers in Albany. Yes. And then he moved away from Albany and went to to Milwaukee for, like, corporate. Okay. Um, I don't know what year that was, but I basically have not been back to Albany since then. I think, um, I mean, for Tifton, when you live in Tifton, going to shop or going to do something nice meant going to Albany. Right. So, the the Albany and Tifton are, like, an hour away from each Mm other, and... Albany is a lot bigger than Tifton. Right. Albany, if you cut Georgia into quarters, Albany's like smack dab in the center of the lower right. left corner. Right. And then the thing about Tifton is, what it's like, how many people, what's the population there? It's like... I think it's around 30,000. Okay. So, and Albany's quite a bit bigger than that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's and over 100,000. And that's for the county, 000. I think, too. So. Yeah. But, but Albany's in the middle of nowhere. Right. And Tifton is on the interstate. Right. 
So this is, even though it's a much smaller town, I imagine that you had maybe some contact with the outside world that I felt like in Albany, nobody drives through Albany on the way to the beach. Right. Right, which is people, everybody drives through Tifton. Everybody drives through Tifton and they stop at the Chick-fil-A. Uh-huh. But then they get back on the interstate and continue on. So most people don't know anything about Tifton outside of the Chick-fil-A and getting speeding tickets on the interstate. Yeah. Um, but Tifton growing up was, it changed a lot. Um, from whenever I was a little kid to when I left, um, for college, it changed from having no, no chain restaurants like Applebee's and all of that stuff. We had fruit stands, um, downtown was pretty active with little stores, but in those 18 years of me growing up there, um, the downtown, things kind of left downtown and we got Applebee's and we got a Red Lobster and... Ruby Tuesdays and Longhorn and all of that stuff right on the interstate. And um, so it really changed the old downtown of Tifton, kind of faded. And how far away is the old downtown from the interstate? Um, a mile. So pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Right there. Yeah. Things just sucked in right to the interstate. Yeah. And then with all of the big signs and everything, and we... Um, we got a super Walmart. We even got a day out of school when the super Walmart opened. <laughs> oh my God. I tell people that Wait, and the they whole, can't believe like, it. School system closed out? Uh, yeah. Like we got, you could get out of school if you wanted to go to the super Walmart opening. Wow. And I remember <laughs> hearing that the show choir performed and there was cheerleaders and this whole thing. But my mom did not let us go because she said she didn't want to be a part of that. Yeah. And whenever, I think I was in sixth grade or something so at the time everyone was going and I wanted to go to the Super Walmart <laughs> opening too but we didn't go and I felt left out. Wait, how old were you when the Super Walmart opened? This sounds like it was. Yeah really I guess good. it was sixth grade. Okay. So how old are you in sixth grade? Um like 12? 12 or 13. Right? Like, yeah. yeah 12 so but now I'm kind of glad my mom Said no, you had we plenty don't need of time to go. to go to the Super Walmart after that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was like, didn't need a whole day off school yeah, for it. Yeah, what a weird moment. So you said was. cheerleaders went there. I, I saw somewhere, maybe on your website, that you were a cheerleader mm-hmm. and you were in 4-H. Yes. I did the 4-H thing yeah. too. So I don't know if everybody knows what 4-H is, but like most people in this, is it, it's like a national thing mm-hmm. or is it a Southern thing? I it's can't national. remember. It's mm-hmm. national. Yeah. It's just more of a rural thing. Yeah. Um, so I raised rabbits. Oh, that's awesome. And we... <laughs> that's my, so great to hear. My mom got us rabbits. We had a rabbit hutch in our backyard mm-hmm. with like, I don't know how many rabbits in there, like maybe 30 rabbits. And we raised them. We had different, we had Netherland dwarfs. And we had Holland Lops for anybody out there who (laughs) raises rabbits. So the Netherland Dwarfs are the really cute. They look like wild rabbits. They're like really cute and brown and small. Um, And then the Holland Lops are the really big ones with the floppy ears. Yeah. Um, And so I was way more involved in 4-H because of the rabbit raising. Yeah. We would take the rabbits to the thing and they would get awards And so what was your involvement with 4-H? Did you have... Yeah, my involvement was pretty, um, pretty significant because, as I mentioned earlier, my dad retired with the Extension Service, and he actually worked with 4-H specifically. Okay. So he was the, sort of the Southwest Georgia director of 4-H. So any county that was in Southwest Georgia, he was in charge of that 4-H program. Um... 
So I was involved in DPA, which was the public speaking sort of thing where you would give a presentation about a project that you liked. My project was arts and crafts, which kind of made sense. And um, whenever you, but whenever you win your project for your district, you have to change your project the next year. Right. And so I would change it to dog care and training and I had a whole presentation on brushing your dog's teeth. <laughs> and then I would win that and the next year I would go back to arts and crafts. So it was either arts and crafts or brushing my dog's teeth. Okay. Um, did that every year. And I, the livestock part that I was so involved with was poultry judging. So we didn't have chickens, but I was on the poultry judging team. Mm. So that's where poultry you... <laughs> so you know a yeah. lot about chickens? Know a lot about chickens. Well, I should come to you because, you know, it's legal now to yeah. have chickens in Athens. And my husband just cleared out the pen in our backyard, and we see chickens in our future. I think they're great to have. There's... Two, two doors down from me now. Okay. Are they, um, do they bother you as a neighbor? Because that's kind of a concern of mine. I think it might bother other neighbors, but I kind of like hearing it. And they don't can, smell can bad really or hear anything. Like, I hear them because they do have a rooster. And I don't uh, know if that's sleep. Supposed to I don't have think rooster. they're supposed to have a rooster. No. But they have a rooster. <laughs> okay. When I was looking at the house to buy it, I overheard the rooster crow when I was like outside. And I stopped and said, is that a is that a rooster? And the realtor was really skirting the issue. Well, maybe. If that bothers you, certainly not. And I was like, it sounds awesome. It sounds like I'm at home. This is great. And he was like, oh yeah, it's definitely a rooster. So you finally left Tifton to go to UGA mm -hmm. and major in painting and drawing. Yes. And how did that play out in your family life? Like, did you say, I'm going to go to art school? Um, I think my parents always knew that I wanted to study that in school. And they were okay with it just as long as I got a degree. You know, as long as you get a college degree, it's okay. Whatever you want to major in is fine. So I started actually as an art history major. And I was an art history major for two years. And, um hadn't painted anything in those two years and my mom actually suggested me switching to studio painting hmm. and drawing and so um switched to that they were really I mean honestly they were really supportive of it um they did laugh whenever I added a minor of religion because <laughs> <laughs> I told them I was adding a minor and dad was so excited like maybe this is something useful you know religion right. he was just like Maybe you could pick something that would lead you into a career, but... So, you went to UGA. I think I read somewhere on your website that, that, that you had considered moving to Atlanta, but that that was intimidating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I... My, you know, after I graduated from college, at least, um, my view of Atlanta was the students who went here that were from Atlanta which was kind of intimidating to me as a student because it seemed like everyone was from Atlanta. So certainly there was just so many people in Atlanta. And it seemed like it was it was almost a little isolating as an art student not from Atlanta here in undergrad mm. because so many of them were from Atlanta and Atlanta private schools. And they had right. had art history in high school and they had great mentors who were artists in Atlanta and they got great internships over the summer 
and I didn't know any of those people to get internships over the summer and um, just didn't have the background of art speak, you know, and coming into it. So it was just very intimidating to me. I and feel you on that. I mean, I, I went to New York. So, yeah, um, <laughs> that would be extreme. That was, <laughs> it was extremely intimidating. And the art speak, um, everybody seemed to know way more than me. And mm-hmm. then, you know, at UGA, when I was there, there was no Hope Scholarship. Mm-hmm. So it was not the same kind of students that are there now. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of students just from Atlanta. Students yeah. were from all over. And it what you know it wasn't the cream of the crop of mm-hmm. students that we have going to UGA now because you had to pay to go here. Yeah. And most people that I knew in Albany that were top of their class went to school out of state. Mm-hmm. Like nobody stayed in state. Yeah. Um. So it was much different. But, and I I when I graduated, I decided I wanted to go somewhere else, and I wanted to go to New York like mm-hmm. people do. But when I got to Pratt, I had that same feeling. Like, I don't know how all those people knew everything already. I know. <laughs> like, that's how I felt. You know, I was like, we're in, we're in art history one. How did you already know everything? You know, and I think that that um, a lot of students from rural South Georgia have the same experience no matter what their major is whenever they're mm-hmm. entering, you know, any degree really because, you know, one of my roommates even started as a junior, and she'd already had several AP genetics classes. And I'd never even thought anything about genetics because we right. never mentioned that <laughs> Did at you my have high school. Any yeah, option to take a genetics class. No, there was class. no option to take genetics. I actually right. thought the only AP class ever was English because that's the only choice that we had. Right. So whenever I, you know, moved into the dorms here and found out that people had had five or six AP classes. So you felt you like know, you were like, what playing are they catch even, up. Yeah, what, are you, what do you mean five or six AP classes? You can take AP history. Yeah. If you can take AP biology, that wasn't even like an offer to me. So and Atlanta art, just seemed, everybody from Atlanta seemed intimidating. And art, the art world is intimidating too. Oh, yeah. So like that crossover between rural and urban mm-hmm. and then regular people and art world people, you know, yeah. it's it's amazing to me because, like, I got into it because I wanted to express myself as a painter, mm-hmm. right? So I like to paint. Yeah. But you don't know what you're getting into when you go to art school. You don't realize that there's this whole level of, of a really elitist structure yeah. <laughs> in the art school until you get in it. Mm-hmm. And then it was just, like, for me, I... You know, I spent a lot of time feeling bad about myself and, like, taking notes and not speaking. Yes. Because I didn't want to sound like an idiot. Yeah. You know? I felt like that a lot. And it was it was difficult sometimes to, you know, really, I just hadn't... Also, in 2005, even though that wasn't that long ago, really, for entering college, the internet wasn't as useful. Like, people weren't right. Googling as often things that they didn't know about. I feel like the information age was still kind of coming into being so I didn't know anything about any sort of modern postmodern contemporary art I was the same way Van Gogh and Monet like the very standard so you know starting as a painting major I was painting portraits and landscapes of things that I knew and people in my classes were already kind of moving towards things that were a little more thought-provoking or political and I just um, usually felt felt behind in that sense, too, because I didn't, like, I 
wanted to figure out how to paint something that wasn't just what I saw, but all I was used to doing was painting what I saw. Yeah. There is the perception that in order to be good as an artist, that's what you're judged on. Mm-hmm. Like, how naturalistically can you paint something? Yeah. Um, and that's always kind of the gold standard. I mean, not in the art world. Mm-hmm. But if you meet someone outside of the art world and you show them an abstract painting, you're just going to get a, huh. Yeah. You know? <laughs> When you bring everything like that back to your family, I think that also kind of tied into it taking me a while to painting things that weren't just painting what I saw because I would paint things and show my family and they would do that pause. Oh, huh. Well, what if you painted, you know, a bulldog (laughs) or what if you painted, you know, your grandmother's house or something instead? So not having the people who are closest to you that, you know, really understanding what you're trying to do can kind of, kind of hindered me and from moving forward. Continue talking yeah. and, and uh, take a look at your work. So, um, so this is not I don't, would you call you wouldn't call them landscapes, or they they're completely abstract, um, or they're they're sort of they're spacescapes. Okay. This series is called Primordial Novae. Okay, they are. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do, what exactly? Where does that come from? So, um, gosh, I guess about two years ago, I realized that I had not been painting. I was living in Atlanta. I was working for the business school. And, um, the UGA, the UGA business school. Yeah. And, um, just not making any art or there was about a three year period where I just really hadn't done many things creative beyond doodling in my sketchbook. So this was after you went to UGA, but after you went to grad school, after I went to grad school and you you went to grad school in Florida Mm -hmm. at Florida state. At Florida state. Yeah. And you didn't major in painting for grad school. Right. I got an MA in arts administration. Okay. So it was within the school of visual arts, but it was, um, almost like getting a master's in public administration. It was very nonprofit based, but museum studies, um, art education curriculum, some nonprofit study things, you know, arts and business. It was a mixture of classes that were set to prepare you to work for an arts organization, mm-hmm. that type of thing, which was great, and I learned a lot, but could absolutely not find a job at an right. arts organization. But I could see that you, so you worked for, while you were in school, you did a couple of interesting internships at Florida mm-hmm. State, Yeah. so you're clearly out there pounding the pavement. Yeah. Um, you worked at a museum there. I worked at a museum there. I worked, well, I worked for the FSU Museum, which is okay. great. I worked for an arts and science museum there um, that had some board problems and sort of ended up switching around how they were managing that. But um, so, and I also interned with their Council on Cultural Affairs. I mean, I was always volunteering, helping with murals and internships, and um, I loved my classes and did great, great research and work in my classes, but just could not find a job. So you moved to Atlanta um, 
you just were cold pl- applying for any job in Atlanta, right. basically. Right. And were you by yourself at this point? Mm-hmm. And I sublet a room in an apartment with someone who I sort of knew mm-hmm. and was living in Atlanta and got an internship with South Arts, which is sort of like the regional organization. Do you know anything about South Arts? Not really. It's, so there's the, the NEA, which is like the national okay. blanket, right? you know, for arts funding. And then there's a, maybe six regional organizations and South Arts is like the Southeast okay. NEA kind of thing. Um, so I interned there with their communications. It was unpaid. Um, and then got the job at the business school because that was the first people who would hire me for a full-time job. So I think it kind of, as much as, I mean, I loved UGA, but it got me down that I thought that I had done everything that I needed to do to get a job at a museum or some type of cultural organization, but I still didn't know the people who knew the people to hire me. Right. That was ultimately... And you wanted to be in Atlanta. Yeah, I did want to be in Atlanta at that point. So you had come a, come a long way from yeah. being scared by the Atlanta people right. to wanting to be in Atlanta. Right. Um, and that's you were working at um, the UGA Business School when you started deciding to paint again. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're like, damn, I'm not doing anything related to my degree. <laughs> exactly. I got to do some yeah. art on the side. And that's when you started this series. Right. That's when I started this series. Um, and I don't really know exactly, I mean, I remember the day when I started painting one of these, but, you know, I had been going through some of the papers that I wrote in grad school, and there was a paper that was about aesthetics, and, um, it was talking about the sublime, Mm -hmm. and just the nature of what the sublime is in art and in general and the feeling of sublime and so I started thinking about what would make me feel that way and that is looking out into space instead of looking at things that are here because to me space is pretty scary I didn't know anything about space at the time but I thought like what's infinite and kind of frightening to me and overwhelming is space So I started reading a lot more about space and looking into it, and I learned about, you know, supernovas and white dwarfs and um, quasars and pulsars, and I started learning about all of these things that were happening in space that I knew nothing about and looking at photographs from the Hubble telescope and um, painting based on how I felt when I was looking at those and reading about those. So... And I noticed that you had a a Sartre quote on your website. And so speaking of the aesthetic, are you into existentialism, like philosophy? Yeah. Um, What what about it do you think... I mean, I read a lot of it when I was at Darton. Do you know where Darton (laughs) is? Yes, I do know. (laughs) Exactly where Darton is. (laughs) So Darton is a two-year college in Albany that when I decided that architecture was not for me Mm -hmm. and I didn't know what I was going to do next, I went home to my parents and I went to Darton for a semester. Mm -hmm. And I got um, real into maybe some recreational use of uh, legal yeah. <laughs> legal substances, yeah. sat in the Darton library, and read existentialism. Yeah. 
and watch the Gulf War un unfold on uh, the Darton TVs, which is what was happening at the time. So I don't remember a lot of it, but I, I was super into it. Yeah. And I read a lot of Kierkegaard. Who was mm -hmm. your person that you were into? You know, I read a lot of Friedrich Nietzsche. Is it Nietzsche or Nietzsche? Nietzsche? I would say Nietzsche. I don't Nietzsche? know. I don't know. So that's the same thing about Sartre. Is it Sartre? Is it yeah. Sartre? Yeah, which a... one? But um, I did. I started reading bad in grad school because I was having to read some philosophy for an aesthetics class, and mm -hmm. so I sort of dipped into that. And I think what um, I think what I like about existentialism is that you sort of own your own destiny in it, and it doesn't depend, or at least how I read it, it doesn't seem to really depend on other people and other things. Right. And that's like, can make you feel a little like breathless. Like it's really, I mean, basically what happens to me in the end is like what I make of it. So, you know, I like reading, reading it and thinking about existentialism just because religion um, has always been so fascinating to me and how people can really dive into that and um, they yes. seem to um, make it a reason for everything and um, so existentialism to me is just an anti-religion of some sort. Yes, so <laughs> it's funny that you say that because that's exactly how I feel about it and when I grew when I grew up in Albany, you know, my parents were Baptist and it was church on Wednesdays, church on Sundays all day. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, existentialism was like the stepping stone to atheism. Yes. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, you know, but I read Kierkegaard who was religious, but yeah. that's, but I got out of it the same thing that you did. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I, I think about it like in the South, you can't, you don't come to atheism, it's not an easy route. No. It's a long route. It's a long route. <laughs> and it's like, you you know, you're, you're in the closet about it yeah. all the time. And um, I find it, it's kind of the same thing about politics. Mm -hmm. So conservative politics yeah. and religion yeah. are birds of a feather. Yes. And I feel like it's like uh, being a libertarian is the, is, stepping, is the stone stepping stone to, <laughs> to getting out of. Yeah. I remember when I was in college, like I was like, maybe I'm a libertarian. I said the same exact thing. I remember, I remember my mom even saying, like, maybe you're a libertarian. Like, yeah. To me, you can't really be a Democrat or a far. liberal, like, but you could you could be a libertarian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're yeah. Just, just socially liberal, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think that's really funny because it's to me that that phil philosophy was the same thing. Yeah, you had to. You couldn't just step out right into that world. It was like a really slow, painful process. And yeah. that Kierkegaard helped with. Yeah, no, I felt the same way, and it was not really painful for me, but definitely slow and just. But you know, when I talk about that with my mom. She always, she gets a little upset because she's a Christian. She's a Southern right. woman, you know. But then she doesn't, she seems to think that that's probably right for me to be thinking the ways that I think because I was questioning everything about the church from, like, when I was five. Right. You know, um, my best friend 
is Jewish and was one of the two or three Jewish families in Tifton. Right. And so when people started to tell me that, you know, you had to do this to go to heaven, I would immediately ask my mom at like five or six years old, well, what does that mean, you know, for Anna's family? Certainly they are because they're amazing. And mom would say, yeah, of course they are. So it kind of started off for me always questioning this can't be the only, this one thing that we're learning can't be the only truth. And your mom was wise so, enough to know that that was you and just let you. Yeah. 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 My mom, as Southern and conservative um, as she is, is kind of a quiet type that usually does listen. And um, I mean, I don't know. She's been a great role model to me in that sense. She always kind of lets me feel or do the way that I want without stepping in and trying to change my mind. So yeah. that's appreciated. Yeah, that's a good yeah. a good quality. I yeah. struggle with that whole being quiet thing as a southerner, yeah, yeah. as a woman. Yeah. Um and just that whole idea of, of being confident to mm-hmm. be who you are has been has been a painful process for mm-hmm. me. Um, so my parents still don't understand me or give me that kind of... Yeah. My yeah. dad doesn't quite understand it yet, but he tries. <laughs> and there you can see a real effort there. And, you know, <laughs> but we speak in two different wavelengths, I feel like, most of the time. And we always have... Mm-hmm. And um, my mom and my sister even laugh at it because we, <laughs> my dad and I will talk to each other on the phone about something that's not a problem, but we'll be talking and we'll both get off the phone with two totally different... Yeah. We thought that you we talked about two totally it. different things. You saw it from two completely different perspectives. Yeah. And then, so we just don't, we can't communicate that well because we're <laughs> always talking about different things in a different way. But... um I think over the past year or two, though, we've been better at recognizing that and not getting as angry <laughs> about it as we used to. Well, that's interesting, considering yeah. um, politics as they are. Yeah. We always talked about politics um, because my family has been really involved in Republican politics, extremely involved my whole life, and so it was common dinner talk to talk about politics and watch CNN and I was always one of the kids in class that knew what was going on civically, you know, uh, knew everything that was happening. And um, so, since we always talked about it, as a kid, I agreed with them because you're agreeing with your parents, you're listening to what they say, you know, I was kind of, I don't know, I identified as a Republican too, and I would talk about Republican politics with them and then, you know, moved to college where... Maybe I'm a libertarian, but I would still <laughs> talk with them about it. But I think that politics, too, has become much more, or the parties have become so much more extreme even since then, um, that I think it reached a point. During the summer, we had some confrontations over politics, but once, I mean, once Donald Trump was elected, I haven't really talked to my parents at all about politics, and I think it's just a courteous, right. I don't know, like, there's no way that we would be able to discuss it in a polite way, so right. we just haven't mentioned it. It's like that didn't happen. Yeah. And we haven't talked about politics, which is 
kind of sad for me because we that's what we talk about as a family. Right. So, and now we don't because I'm the one, the one Hillary voter <laughs> there's, in the There's ring. always the one. Yeah, the one. <laughs> so, um, so we haven't really discussed it and it's, um, I mean, it's a little, it's more than a little upsetting to me. It's very upsetting to me, but I also, it's difficult to like respect your parents' opinions and then not respect a decision at the same time to respect them as parents, but right. then just completely disagree. In well, something. I, I was okay with disagreeing with it, but I felt like uh, my father was starting to talk to me like I was eight years old mm-hmm. when we started having this conversation, and that's what really made me upset. Yeah, like it wasn't that I disagree with him, it's that he wouldn't acknowledge that my opinion was valid. Yeah. Um, that really caused, I think, the big rift in our conversations. And I don't, I, I haven't talked to my parents really, uh, it was right after the election that I got in this big argument with my dad, but um, before, right when Trump won the nomination, mm-hmm. my mom shockingly said that she, there was no way she would vote for him. She told me this because, mm-hmm. I mean, she's very conservative. I don't talk, I never have talked politics about my parents. So that was the shocking part, like right. that she brought that up to me. Yeah. I guess she knew that I would agree with her. So she she was like, I will never vote for Trump because of the way he treats women. And this mm-hmm. was before the grabbing Oh, yeah, stuff. that would have been that this was, before. This was before all of that stuff came out. Yeah. Now, what her, what she meant by that was he's on his third wife. Right? Yeah. That's not the way Southern women, you know, family values. Like, that's not family values. He's on his third wife. He's got different kids with every wife, you know. And so, for her, her perspective was he's a loudmouth New Yorker who can't keep his family together. Right. You know, and he doesn't treat women well in that way. And I was like, well, you know, good for you, Mom. Whatever. But then, so then I think... I wasn't prepared when after the election it seems like they did vote for him. Right. Right. So that's when I got into the fight with my dad because I had kind of made in my mind like peace with, okay, they're not going to vote for Trump mm-hmm. because my mom had said that. I don't know what happened, but yeah. I don't, I didn't ask him directly, yeah. but I'm guessing from the conversations we had afterwards that he did. Yeah. I think it's my mom has also always respected, you know, a private ballot. And she always would say right. that, you know. That's what my dad vote, would say, too. You can vote for whoever you want to, and I'll vote for whoever I want to, and we don't have to tell each other, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, but then they were always the family we had on our station wagon, every single Republican <laughs> sticker all over it. Going up and private <laughs> ballot. <laughs> we're like, private ballot? What do you mean? Everyone knows, like, who the family is voting for. Um... And, but I will say that neither of them had a Trump sticker this, this election, but you know, for them, things come down to party politics in a sense, even though they're like a very typical Southern family, they've been just involved with the GOP for so long that it's almost like supporting a team. Right. You know, at that point they have to support the party and the party values to them makes sense but um the party values to me don't even make sense anymore so 
Well, you know, I don't agree. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I respect uh, the the stance of the Republican Party. Like, right. I I I was I'm I'm still confused by Trump as as I guess most everybody is because yeah. I didn't. He doesn't fit the kind of Republican Party line. Right. So, and I think that's you know it's a horrible thing to try to explain to your children. That you don't really respect the president. Yeah. You know, that because I always be. have, even though I disagree with them. Right. Um, that's the level that that I'm at right now. Yeah. And I think that that could be partially why we haven't really discussed it since the election either. Neither of my parents were um, for Trump in the beginning or, you know, like, right. or anything. And so... Uh, there might be a little mutual understanding of like, this is kind of crazy, like, <laughs> like what right. has happened. Or but they don't want to have to defend that those and stances. They don't, mm-hmm. Yeah. In Greek mythology, there was a belief that everything started from absolutely nothing, which was called chaos. Right. And chaos was a primordial, the original primordial being. Right. So there was chaos, the nothing. And from that is where everything came from. So from chaos, there was light and darkness and energy and water. And all of, the, all of their primordial beings sort of came together and would create a new primordial being. But the original one was chaos. So the very first paintings that I painted were a chaos series to me because that's where I was exploring this idea. Then I just continued painting them and would read a little bit more about a different primordial being and name the next couple series, like couple paintings after that. Um, so right now I'm in Eros. So. Let's move back into the other room yeah. since we're going to talk with you. Okay, I noticed on your website that you um, give you have work for sale mm-hmm. on your website and you give mm-hmm. a portion of your sales to charity each time. Yes. What made you decide to do that? Well, I work during the day from eight to five in fundraising for UGA. Okay. So, um, nonprofit and giving back is always pretty important to me. And, um, when I noticed what was happening since the election with, you know, the NEA possibly being eliminated, less funding for PBS, you know, women's rights, the EPA and environmental issues, all of these things. Um, it made me feel like I could do something, at least with my paintings, to help out the causes that, you know, everyone needs to be supporting so much right now. And I feel very fortunate that I have a full-time job and then paint. Right. So... I'm able to give a little back with every with every print that I sell. So um, that's why I started that. And um, It's yeah. nice to be able to do that. And, you know, a lot of people, and especially uh, left-leaning artists, in times when, you know, at times like this, like <laughs> after, I was in New York on September 11th. And mm-hmm. I remember, like, of course that was disruptive to the whole world. But for artists, it was just like, we couldn't make work. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, my work was kind of a little bit fluffy before September 11th. And so then I was like, I can't paint pictures of bridesmaids with big eyeballs yeah. right now. Like, yeah. that seems really stupid, <laughs> you know. So I think that's one, you know, and you all, I always worry about being too self-involved when I'm mm-hmm. painting. You know, you get into your own little world, but I think that's part of, like, me just... I'm trying to get over that because I'm like, you know, tons of men have been doing this since the beginning of time and none of them ever questioned that it was a (laughs) legitimate path, you know, for them to express themselves. You're right. So I try to just be like, well, I'm going to keep making my paintings because that's what I do. Yeah. But I think that what you're doing with giving some of that money to charity is really kind of takes the edge off of that question. Yeah. Yeah. It, It helps me a little bit in feeling like I'm doing something to help because... I feel like that's also something that just I think about a lot in general, even even before the election, is am I doing enough to help the people around me, or am I doing enough to, I don't want to just be someone who goes to an office all day and watches Netflix and then, like, paint some for myself. Like, <laughs> certainly, <laughs> cert- maybe that's the existentialism, too, like, coming into it. I certainly hope that my time here is going to, like, affect somebody else in a positive way. So in addition to painting and having a full-time job, you're also on the Athens Cultural Affairs Commission. I know they had a big meeting this week. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Um, So we did have a meeting, and the mayor and commission passed the Public Art Master Plan, which is, I know, thank goodness. (laughs) Um, It's a five-year, the main part is a five-year sort of strategic plan for public art in Athens. That will be supported by SPLOST funds. and um, So SPLOST, for people who don't know, is special yes. op- local option sales tax. Yes. Something like that, yes. <laughs> yes. And whenever we approve SPLOST, um, the mayor and commission um, decide how much to divide up that money for. And luckily here, part of that does go to public art. So that supports things like the mural at the library is a SPLOST funded project. Um there is a new piece going up at the World of Wonder out on Southeast Clark Park that um, the commission was a part of. Um, bus stops, the really fancy bus stops right. that are art stops, were funded by that. So yeah, so we meet monthly and organize the calls for artists for those projects. And we also offer some arts in the community grants. And those will be announced, I believe, within a week or two. So those are small grants that arts organizations can apply to, um, and they just have to use it within the next year. I think last year we supported Rabbit Box. Okay. So yeah, it does a lot and of good so things. So you said you were interested in working with murals, mm-hmm. and um, I saw you did that in Tallahassee some, yes. and you also did that with Living Walls in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you What did you do with Living Walls? I'm interested in that. <laughs> with Living Walls, I was just an artist assistant. So Living Walls. Um, has a wonderful program, and I know that they changed it up since since I helped in 2012. But um, they have tons of volunteers, and so basically whenever the artist comes in to paint the wall for a week, they do it really quickly within the week. Um, they have volunteers who hold the paint bucket, fill in the big, you know, spaces of red, um, bring them water and food, kind of stuff like that. It's not um, very glamorous in any right. sense, especially <laughs> since the walls are painted in August. It is blazing hot. Yeah. And it's, you know, usually the sun's Wait, like it's right always on. always in August? Yeah. Hmm. And um, they, it's just like a 
mob of artists that come in and paint all the murals during the one week. Hmm. Then there's a party at the end. So um, I helped with a wall that was painted by Hintz that was in downtown Atlanta. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, that was sort of like a one-time volunteering. But you thing. have a lot of experience with murals, so you want to mm-hmm. bring that to Athens. I yeah. think that's great. Because yeah. we have a lot of murals going up around town now mm-hmm. um, that are really interesting. What is the black and white mural that's on the side of... Oh, beside the Rook and Pawn? Yes. Oh, that's the the mural. Athfest helped fund that one, and that's by David Hale. Right. He's and the, some a tattoo students artist, helped him. Right? He is. He's a yeah. tattoo artist. And some students helped him at the London House Arts Center, I believe. And that one's pretty cool because he's so meticulous with his painting since he's a tattoo artist that they... He painted his work on those big panels, and they attached the panels to the wall oh, so that okay. the lines could be straighter and not bumpy from the bricks. Right. So um, that was a really great one, and I heard that Athfest is funding a new mural this year, but I don't know where it's going to be. Okay. And you're also working on this Nasty Woman exhibition. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of politics. Yes. Um, and this is going to be at Tatiana's new gallery, mm-hmm. the Trio Gallery. Yes. And so Tatiana was my last guest that yeah. kind of leads into this. So tell me what's going on with that so far. So, so far we have announced the call for artists. The show, the big night for the show will be June 30th, which okay. is a Friday. And it will be at Trio. And we're hoping to gather as much art as possible. So... And for those who don't know about this, can you right. explain the Nasty Women? So the Nasty Women art exhibitions were started in New York. And I believe the first one was in January. And it was so successful that other cities started picking it up too and wanting to host their own Nasty Women art exhibition. So it's exhibition. a group exhibition. Yes. And it's mostly women in it's the exhibition? It's mostly women. I believe the only real criteria is if the artist identifies as a nasty woman. Okay. So to me... It could be a man. It could be a man. Whoever right. identifies <laughs> as a nasty woman is welcome to, to you know, submit some artwork. And the artwork is all for, for the cause, which our cause is supporting the Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta, which I volunteer for, too. Another thing. Wow. <laughs> but, um... And so the Feminist Health Center in Atlanta, yes. you volunteer there now still? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, even though we're in Athens? Yes. <laughs> the Feminist Center, and I haven't, I just started volunteering a few months ago, but um, the Feminist Center in Atlanta is a wonderful organization that um, their clinic provides affordable birth control, hormone therapy. Um, they do have abortion services, but they're just like Planned Parenthood in the sense that they're they're helping all healthcare needs for women that can't afford that can't afford it. Right. And they are incredibly kind and non judgmental and their staff is just phenomenal. And if you give to the feminist health center in Atlanta, the money is going to Atlanta. You know, sometimes when you give to a bigger organization like Planned Parenthood, your gift could in the end be supporting somewhere that's not close to you, but you know, that's a local Atlanta organization, so, and that's the closest, you know, abortion center for women living in Athens, so that's probably where they would go, so it's sort of like supporting your local organization, even though it's there. So, the call for the Nasty Women exhibition, where can we find that? 
Yes, it is. We have a Facebook page for it. Um, and I believe it's just Call for Artists Nasty Women Art Exhibition Athens. Okay. You um, All you need to do is send your resume, just art information about what type of piece you'd like to submit, any images that you have of previous work that might be similar to it. But it's not going to be, we're not really curating it in a sense of only picking a few things. We really want to cover the walls full of a rainbow of wonderful Nasty Women artwork. So these works are going, the wholesale is going, the, the wholesale, wholesale price? price will go to the Feminist Center. Great. So really it suggested, you know, smaller pieces that someone that's coming to the event could be able to afford. So certainly if someone wanted to make a beautiful large piece that was hundreds of dollars, that's that will be accepted too. But um, in thinking of the crowd and who in Athens will be attending the event, it's probably best to cater your artwork to things that those people can buy to support the organization. Great. Mm -hmm. um, it's very nice to... Yeah. Meet you, Melissa. Yeah. And I'm super glad that Tatiana hooked us up and we had a chance to talk. Me too. Thanks so much to Melissa Lee for that inspiring chat. You can find links related to some of the things that we talked about on the Peachy Keen page of my website. That's Vivian Liddell, V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L.com, including a link to Melissa's portfolio at 10thmusestudio.com, as well as links to the Athens Cultural Affairs Commission, the call for entries to the Nasty Women Art Exhibition at Trio Gallery in Athens, and the Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta. For our next episode, I'll be joining my friend Nedra Deadweiler, who runs Civil Bikes, leading historical bike tours around Atlanta. She's going to be doing a special tour for Women's History Month on Saturday, March 25th, and we'll be looking at some Atlanta art as part of that. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope the rest of your day is peachy keen. <laughs>